0: Hi, and welcome to the How Not to Think podcast, the podcast that looks at the different influences on our thinking and looks at disruptive people in many different areas. Um, if you're interested, you can look at my book on Amazon, I Think, Therefore I'm Wrong, that explains this in more detail. But for now, today, I'm really excited to introduce to it you all Rick Lozano, And Rick helps people unlock their potential and amplify their talent, but in a slightly different way than most people do. Very creative. Um, He has 20 years of experience, award-winning talent, leadership development programs, but he has a unique approach, uh, which involves including his talents as a songwriter, singer, and musician And as far as I know, in the first almost 100 episodes, Rick is the first person we've had on that has any musical talent whatsoever. So I'm really looking forward to this. Uh, He's also the author of Acoustic Leadership, Develop a Leadership Culture That Resonates. Okay, well, that's enough for me, Rick, all the way from San Antonio. Welcome. What a pleasure. Thank you, Howard. I appreciate it. By the way, you have two of
1: the best taglines/slash titles ever. So, your book, of course. I think therefore I'm wrong. Love that. But the one I was just in love with is the uh, the tagline from your podcast covering everything from artificial intelligence to normal stupidity. I love that. And by the way, I think I've experienced both of those things in the span of just this week.
0: <laughs> oh, probably in the last 24 hours, um, especially if you've been on social media. Uh, oh, indeed. Very true. Um, so Rick, tell us a little bit about how you got to develop this uh, business and how you do things to this point.
1: Well, thank you. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm a leadership consultant, a speaker, an author, uh, and I do combine sort of my musical abilities with, with my work. And the best way I can demonstrate how all of this ties together, Howard, is, as you can imagine, in the form of a song. All right. So here's the, here's the true story of how this came about. Right. Uh, I was doing a, a keynote presentation in your neck of the woods, actually. I was in South Carolina, in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was doing a keynote presentation and I'd been there the year before. And afterwards, someone came up to me and they said, hey, you know, great presentation, etc. How do you how do you get into the line of business that you're in? And I said, Well, you know, it varies, you know, every person I know who's doing similar work has had a different journey. And they say, Okay, well, what specifically did you do? And so I just sort of gave them the overview of how my life had transpired to get me there. And at the end of the conversation, he said to me, he's like, Hey, that's funny, you ought to write a song about that. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ha, ha. He said, no, seriously, that's how you should introduce yourself. You should call it, by the way, you should call it how to be like me. So Howard, I took this gentleman's advice. I said, yes, and as they do in the improvisation world. And yeah. uh, I wrote a song. This is the true story of how to become a keynote leadership speaker. And uh, by the way, this is a joke. I don't take myself too seriously, but here's the steps. Here we go graduate from college with a useless degree move to California to set yourself free grow your hair along and join a crappy band and that's how you be like me Moved to Colorado with a girl who is a clown she wasn't always a clown. I should mo- point that out she this is a bad story <laughs> I should cut this out okay so the context here is she went to clown college
0: Oh okay
1: this, this isn't making the story any better is it? okay here <laughs> the song. Move to Colorado with a girl who is a clown. Break up because you're afraid to settle down. Move on back to Texas for a teaching degree, and that's how you be like me. Move back to Colorado for a woman that you met. Struggle for the bills cause you don't have a job yet. Marry then divorce, see how easy this can be? That's how you be like me. All right, here's where it gets complicated. All right. teaching, move to banking. Quit banking, back to teaching. Quit teaching, back to banking. a job teaching banking see how that works stay a corporate trainer because you love what you do work for a tech co try something new no more seats and ties on my body you will see and that's how you be like me find the love of your life get married celebrate she thinks the song is stupid, but I think it's really great. Become a singing speaker who teaches how to lead. And that's how you be like me. That's right. That's how you be like me. One more time. That's how you be like me. How to be like
0: me. That's awesome. That's fantastic. I love it. And it's unique. Don't think there's too many people who would do that, and certainly it's the first time anyone has responded to my question <laughs> with a song, which is great. Yeah. You know, I just have this right. thing about clown college. Uh, is that actually a school or is it, is it a college for clowns?
1: So it was a specific class. I, I joke around in the song, but she was <laughs> studying a physical theater comedy, and okay. uh, one of the uh, tracks was actually on clowning, And so she actually did study clowning. It was quite fascinating because there's a lot of history to it and technique to it that I think, you know, the average person like me, who's not a clown, uh, it was, it was fascinating. Mm. It was a little creepy at times with the paint, but uh, (laughs) but it was fascinating.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. Well, it's certainly original. And, and awesome so those two things really make a difference so i could see why you'd be successful how do people respond i mean i hope people i'm sure that cross the board but but you know most people going to a talk or something you know we're are not expecting the guy to pick up a guitar and start singing uh what, do, what what's typically the response if there is such a thing
1: it's really interesting that you ask that question because i, I think People don't usually know what to expect when they hear that, you know, some guy is going to bring a guitar on stage and, you know, give a keynote presentation with it. And it's a matter to me, I think that, the, well, first of all, two things, music to me is the source of inspiration and connection. And when we do it right, it's, it's downright magical because it just, it, it connects, it inspires. And what I've learned is I can't make the music about me. If it's just me saying, ha ha, look at me, I play guitar, you know, that's going to check some people out. But mm-hmm. what I really try hard to do is get people on stage, use their influence, use their words, get them involved in creating music. And when we do that, it's so much fun. And it takes the actual learning points of the conversation and, and just it, it just accentuates them. Um, I did a, a presentation in Tahoe a while back, and it was funny because afterwards, um, Uh, I had several people who had agreed to give me testimonials uh, about the keynote. It was so funny. It's like the best, worst testimonial ever. This guy gets on camera and he says, yeah, well, when I saw that Rick had a guitar, I totally wasn't into it. I thought this was going to be awful. And then it was amazing. I was like, okay, well we redeemed it there. So thank you. But you know, to that point, it's, it's a matter of inviting people to experience it with me. I think that's the real key to how to, to make it so that people aren't turned off by it.
0: Yeah. Well, now you mentioned that, you know, I've done a number of keynote speakers, but the, those speeches, but those speeches haven't had either keys or notes, which obviously <laughs> you have included. Um, well, there is, you know, I love this approach because typical training and education and teaching is very narrow-minded, does not take into account what we know, like for example, how stimulating music can be. And this is just a great way of getting people engaged uh, that otherwise would be neglected. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I think it's awesome. As I say, as somebody who looks at education and training and sees how mundane and boring it is a lot of the time and how it fails, absolutely fails to learn what we know about engaging people.
1: Yep. That is such a true statement. And, you know, coming from the world of leadership and talent development, I hate to say this, but sometimes we promote our own myths and we say things like, well, people have certain learning styles and they can only learn in this manner. And that that is simply not true. It's scientifically Mm -hmm. not true. You know, some other things that you hear is, well, you know, the reason training doesn't work is because people have short attention spans. And that's just simply not true. Now, okay, there's, there's nuance to this, right? We do live in a distracted world, certainly. <laughs> but those same people are like, oh, you know, we have the attention span of a goldfish. They say that, and then they go and play Fortnite for eight hours in a row. Right. Or <laughs> yeah, binge, no, watch, no, binge watch Ozark on Netflix. It's, it's not true. It isn't, In my opinion, what we do have is not an attention pro- problem. We have an expectation problem. People have choices of what to give their attention and they expect it to be entertaining. Right. And so for that reason, you know, you think about traditional training initiatives, a lot of them do fail because to your point, they're boring, Yeah. they're mundane. And when you have somebody, a facilitator or a trainer, just talking at you for hours and hours and hours, of course, that's not going to connect. Yep. So, you know, I do try to do things a little bit differently. And I, I fully believe, you know, as somebody who's involved in learning, getting people involved, not just... In the dialogue, but hmm. co-creation and practice and those things, active hmm. involvement is really the key for for the work that we do.
0: For anything, you know, as you rightly say, you know, as a practicing clinical psychologist, I would have people, oh, my son's got ADD. And to your point, well, you know, how does he play eight hours on the video game? That's, <laughs> he hasn't got an attention problem there, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What is it? Um, okay. Well, you know, it's boring. Uh, my son was in my son was in Montessori school uh, when he was like three or four, and the teacher said, "Well, you know, he he you know he likes wandering around and talking." I, I really think he's got ADD, and I said, "No, he's bored." And, you know, she <laughs> said, "She said you can't be bored at Montessori," and I said, "No, he's smart and he's bored." Okay, yeah. we'll get him tested, and yeah. his IQ was like 155. He was bored, yeah. okay, yeah. just like all of us at some point in school were bored, right? Yeah. You can't, that makes it difficult to learn. You know, the teacher who says, my kids just don't understand it. Kids today, what have you. It's your problem, you're not relating, you're not meeting them where they're at. You're not and engaging
1: them. That, that makes me think of a, another point that's really, you know, to this conversation, you know, especially over the last decade, you know, we, we've talked about generational differences and, Sure, there are differences in the way people behave, what we're experienced, what we're used to. Sure, sure, there are some nuances there, of course. But, you know, I remember, and again, I would hear this, and this frustrates me because in my profession, as learning and talent development professionals, I would hear other professionals saying, you know, millennials at the time. And of course, now it's Gen Z and beyond. They would say, millennials learn differently. Bullshit. <laughs> That's, that's not true. The human brain, you know, you're still connecting neurons and synapses, right, the right. learning function is the same. The difference is the mode of consumption and what we have available to us and, right. and the tendencies to want certain modes of, 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 of information accessibility. Right. And So all of those things are things that we, we've got to push back on and say, look, maybe there's value in mixing up the way that we deliver training, learning, absolutely. But when we start to tell ourselves these things, that people are fundamentally different, well, A, it's bad science, and B, it just doesn't, it's not helpful. It's no, not no. helpful anyone.
0: No, no. And no, it isn't. And, and, and some of the most sad things I've seen in my practice over the years were, were people, specifically teenagers, who just because they didn't have the skills that worked in the conventional education system, you know, were labeled and then labeled themselves as dumb and stupid and what have you. And they had some of the most brilliant skills. You know, one guy, I remember, had fantastic technical skills, but thought he was dumb because he wasn't in the conventional education mode. We got to get beyond that because it is insulting. It's, uh, you know, it is not helpful. And we need to understand that anyone can be taught, but you got to find out where they're at and adapt accordingly.
1: And I'll add one more thing to that. I do think that these labels, these approaches, they're also dangerous.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Because when we put that sort of label on somebody, I think it's what referred to as, I heard it as the Pygmalion effect. You know, it's that you you Mm -hmm. label somebody, as such and such, they perform to that level, and so it's like the self-fulfilling prophecy. So right. we've got to be careful with how we approach people. And to your point, there's all sorts of different expertise, and 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 you know people are naturally brilliant in their own ways, and we've got to meet them where they are and help them develop that, right. and not try to force them into some conventional right. bucket.
0: Right, and and think about how their special talent can help us think about what we're doing a little differently Absolutely. Too, you know? And not say, oh, they don't fit. Well, how would they fit, you know? Perhaps there's something about what we are doing or thinking that is blocking this, but there's actually some real potential, Yeah, here, you know?
1: And we're the ones who can learn from it, yes. Exactly,
0: exactly. We are the ones who should be learning from it, um, not take this sort of binary approach our way is the right way anything else is wrong you know sit up and listen to what i'm telling you oh, Come yeah because yeah. i get yeah. mad at me yeah
1: when i first discovered your podcast by the way uh, I, I of course latched on to your your comments on binary thinking and there are so many ways that this concept binary thinking this or that is is just making life more complicated for everybody i mean of course we could You know, you can think about that in the political realm, sure. You know, you're either this or you're that. You're either with us or you're against us. And that's not helpful for anybody because, you know, there's some ideas on both sides that might be valuable. It's a horrible way of dividing people and it doesn't serve any bigger purpose. But, you know, we we do that. For example, uh, I work in leadership and talent development. And we oftentimes say, you know, to leadership, it's either this or this. You know, as a leader, you have to be like this. You can't be like this. And it's just not true. It's not true. We've got to get beyond that binary thinking and say, hey, some of the best leaders I know are also some of the ones who are most honest about their individual shortcomings. Mm-hmm. And I remember, mm-hmm. I remember once I, I was at a, a conference and I had a participant come up to me and they say, you know, the challenge that I'm having as a leader is people are coming to me for advice on stuff I don't even know how to do. And, and and I feel fake. And I said, you know, two things. First, congratulations, <laughs> you know, if people are coming to you for advice. That's great, we value you, you're doing something right. And, and B, you don't have to know. Yeah. So exactly. the best things we can do as, as a leader is listen, Mm -hmm. and 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 admit that we don't know everything and get beyond that you have to absolutely know this or you know it's it's not true you can be for example uh unsure and yet decisive you can be courageous and still be fearful Mm -hmm. those things can coexist and they do
0: absolutely absolutely and We have to reach that point where people understand that because it is not part of the cultural narrative. Um, I have a book coming out in April, Falling to Grace, The Art and Signs of Redemption, which is how you deal with those tough situations in in your life. How do you deal with them? And it comes back to being authentic, honest, and what have you. And when you look at that, uh, and, and what's interesting, this concept of not self-esteem but self-compassion okay which isn't giving yourself a free ride but it is giving yourself a break and not beating yourself up badly when there's actually no need to like your leader beating i don't know about this oh my god don't beat yourself why should you know about it you don't let's just be honest about it but as I dove, dive deeper into that, the cultural narrative, especially about success and leadership, is you gotta be a hard ass narcissist yeah. to be successful. Yeah. I think that's bullshit. First of all, I think it's a wrong message. Yeah. And also, I suspect you'd know better than I that there are many leaders who absolutely, their leadership comes from being completely the opposite compassionate, authentic, caring. People want to work for them. They want to work with them. They don't alienate people, blah, blah, blah. You
1: said something that really resonates with me too. And it's this idea of <laughs> trying to improve people by 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 making them feel bad about themselves. So you're <laughs> talking about compassion. You know, we have got to meet people where they are, yes, but we have also got to realize that there's different avenues to success. Like you said, we don't have leaders who all follow the, the same playbook. Right. Some of the most inspirational leaders do things completely different and that's okay. Um, I wrote the book, Acoustic Leadership, and, and I got to tell you the honest story, where it came from, it came from a sense of frustration. Hmm. And this is what happened. So I've been in learning and development training, you know, emerging leaders for, for years. And I've reached a point where I suddenly looked at the work we were doing and I said, this doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense. And, and to the more specific example is, at the time, I was working in this organization, and we were developing our leadership competency model, like, like many organizations do, mm-hmm. right? They say, hey, here's the things we need our leaders to do. Here's the areas in which we need our leaders to be not only aware, but proficient. And in theory, hey, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they should know what is expected of them. The flaw happens when we start to say, you have to be great at all of them. And, and to take that even further, what really, really frustrated me was these dynamics. And of course, there's books and books and books written about leadership competencies. And they typically have like, you know, six main buckets, like communication and problem solving. And then within those six buckets, they have, you know, uh, uh, handles hard conversations effectively and paints an inspired vision. And we go on and on and on. And in our particular case at this organization, we had something like six different competencies, subdivided into, well, six different buckets, subdivided into 12 individual competencies in each. And of course, multiplied by six. And it's unrealistic. And we're telling our leaders, you got to be great at all of this. Right. And then to make it worse, we, we did assessments on this. And of course, the assessments proved more frustrating than they provided value because people would get these arbitrary ratings. On a scale of one to five, you're, you're a three. Okay, what does that do for me? And Mm -hmm. then we would tell them, you've got to get that three up to a four. But the truth is, you don't have to be great at everything. Use those things where you naturally excel. And that will help you influence communication and collaboration. You can't fix everything. Focus on your areas of strength rather than those areas of deficiency. I mean, you've got to mitigate those things Mm -hmm. so -hmm. that they don't get in the way but you're going to get far more return focusing on those areas of greatness.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You can't be great at everything. And to expect yourself is inviting frustration. Um, and, and it's in some ways dishonest because you know you can't be. Uh, and there we dive back into the virtues and values that I think underpin being successful at anything. Okay, because that's where you get, where you're open-minded, more open-minded. More creative, and probably much better skilled in in your interpersonal relationships, and those are important, you know. And this comes, you know, this comes from this whole history. You know, we could go back and, and blame, um, you know, the uh, Reformation period and the reductionists um, and Descartes. You know, it's all about your behavior. No, yeah. it's not what you do. It's how you do it, as yeah. much, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, and so, we've been stuck very much in that wrong mode um, of behavior, behavior, behavior. And, and hey, I was trained, you know, back in the last millennium as a psychologist. In you know, it was behavior modification. This is what it was: Skinner, yeah. you know, Pavlov, all that stuff. This is how it, you can describe it. And, You know, and after a while you say, well, wait a minute, that's baloney. I mean, there's all sorts of other things that are going on there. (laughs) You know, how do you interpret that, you know, this is happening? What makes you respond that way? It's not just habit. And, you know, and so that has tied us down a lot in misunderstanding and making generalizations about behavior that are generalizations.
1: And it's not just behavior, it's, it's organizational structures in general. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when you think about what you just mentioned, these are constructs we created. These are constructs that we said sort of are relevant and, and matter. And, and, you know, maybe they do matter in context, right? Maybe they did matter at a certain time, and maybe in some ways they still do. But if you think about, for example, you know, the 40-hour work week. Somebody said, this is a construct that we've all got to live by. And what we've realized, especially in the world of the pandemic, that doesn't necessarily hold water anymore. It's not necessarily the best way to get work done. And so from a how not to think perspective, we've Mm -hmm. got to look at the work that we do and the behaviors, not only that are exhibited and desired, but also the behaviors we're motivating. What are we motivating people to do? And you and I know this when we, when we say, Oh, you've got to check the clock or punch the clock at 5 PM. What are we motivating? We're people to show up and do nothing for the last hour at work while they're bored only to say, yep, I put in 40 hours. Mm -hmm. The question is, were they doing valuable work? And often the answer was no. Right. Right. We've got to look at those paradigms and potentially challenge them to find the real value in them.
0: No question about that. And, um, as soon as you create an arbitrary concept, like a 40 hour week, um, there are lots of things implicit in that, that that definitely could be challenged. Oh yeah. Definitely could be challenged, you know, because as soon as you tie it down to one idea, this is bureaucracy, right? Here's the rule. (laughs) Yeah, but you know, it creates, in some ways it creates more problems than it solves. I'll give you another example
1: of that. We talked about attention earlier. And and again, we say people, people say we have an attention problem. I don't believe that to a certain degree. We have an expectation problem, like we discussed. The other thing that we have, especially these days, is an availability problem. What we've seen over the last decade with things like Slack and chat and constant email communication and cell phones, we've created this expectation of immediacy mm-hmm. of constant availability which if you're a customer it's fantastic mm-hmm. you know i want to be able to text somebody and get a response immediately in a workplace setting These constructs that we've suddenly say, hey, everyone's got to be immediately available. It's getting in the way of our best work. Mm. From a leadership standpoint, we talk about this in the book. We have leaders who have said, hey, we've got to be quick to respond to everything. We've got to be on the ball. And what we realize is that we're distracting people from doing the work that matters. Mm -hmm. Um, What's the name of the book? It's um, Deep Work, Cal Newport was Mm -hmm. one that, that looked at this. And again, it's examining the relationship between that immediate availability and distraction. And we're seeing it over and over and over. We're distracting ourselves from the work that we should be doing. Mm -hmm. So we've got to, again, look at that organizational structure. What are we motivating? Are we motivating people to be immediately available or to do their best work and
0: focus? Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, if, if my boss said to me, we've got to respond immediately, I'd probably say, well, give me a few days to think about that yeah um, right? Yep. Uh, because because uh, well, it depends what you're responding to, but you know, immediacy does have some some value, but it also has some downside.
1: And potential um, bad decision making associated with it.
0: <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. So it sounds like in your work with with leadership and leadership training, you have ob- obviously, being in that position, come to understand a lot more about, you know, sort of standard advice that really doesn't hold up very well and things that are actually missing yeah. in training leadership. And you've tried to incorporate those. Yeah.
1: You know, and, and, and yes, I, that, that is true. And that's a lot of the focus of what I do. What I also really try to focus on is, is look, we can't change everything. I get that. What we can do, is make small, meaningful changes that matter. In, in one of the keynotes that I'm uh, developing now, one of the big focuses is this concept of rewriting the rituals. And mm-hmm. it's essentially that. It's like, what, what, what exists in our culture and why do we do it? And I love this. I give this example of a, a ritual I recently learned in the world of music. And what I learned is that several singers have this ritual of before a show, they drink olive oil. And I'd never heard that before. I was like, no kidding. Why would they drink olive oil? Well, you know, supposedly, I guess, to lubricate the vocal cords, right? Mm-hmm. And I love this idea because we, when we look at rituals like that, we have to ask ourselves, what's the point? The point of a ritual is to enable a desired output. The ritual purportedly enables this output. Mm-hmm. And similarly, we've got all these rituals at work that supposedly enable these outputs. Mm-hmm. But sometimes there's a disconnect. And so what I encourage people to do is look at those things that exist. Where is it not working? Mm. What can we do? Either negotiate it, eliminate it, automate it, delegate it. What can we do to actually enable that specific output? I'll give you an example. (laughs) This, by the way, this is one of my favorite things to hate. And it is the, uh, I say this lovingly, by the way, the, 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 performance review process.
0: Oh yes.
1: So Performance review process, again, it's a construct that some consultant created somewhere, sold corporate America and everyone else on it. We've been doing it for, for eons now, right? It's this concept that every year or however, uh, you know, duration, you are assessed and rated on your performance. Now, when I was asking this or researching in my book, I did a lot of research on this and it was fascinating what I learned several things. So, for one, 49 percent of at least according to one study, 49 percent or let me start with this one, 94 percent of organizations do some sort of performance review process. So basically it's universal. Everyone does some form of this. There was another stat that I read that we spend about 1.5 trillion dollars in the US alone on sort of these performance review processes when we factor in you know all the factor, all the, all the people, et cetera. Now, here's the kicker. Only 49% in one study said that these performance reviews actually accurately appraise performance, a.k.a. they don't work. And by the way, this is coming, this particular stat, SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management, which by the way, the human resources function is usually the one that does performance reviews and they're saying it doesn't work. And, And I look at this and I say, okay, I've been there. I've been a part of this machine and it's not exactly fun and it's certainly not inspiring. Okay. I can't get rid of it. What can I do to make it better? And I'll give you an example. I have this one client, I won't mention their name, but this one client, they, they understand sort of that baggage that's associated with traditional performance reviews. And they said, okay, what is the point? The point is, or it's supposed to be performance reviews, help people perform better. So what they did, they modified their entire performance review process and they did several things that were really significant. Number one, they decoupled it from pay. They (laughs) took away that thing that was going to say, Hey, we're going to pay you more or less based on this. So they got rid of that fear factor, if you will. Mm -hmm. The other thing that they did two things, they said, okay, we're going to make it more frequent so that it's not this annual surprise. And we're gonna include a couple of key questions rather than these elaborate rating systems. We're gonna make this really simple. And one of the questions they ask in this performance review process is, what makes work hard? <clears throat> that's Duh. it, that's it. They ask this question, people say, okay. And by the way, if you're asked that question at work, you're gonna give an honest answer. Right. You're gonna actively participate, right? And from there, you're engaged in this output, hopefully. But you and your manager or whoever's conducting it, now you've got an opportunity to just say, let's get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Let's analyze what's making your work hard and fix it. And I think right. that's brilliant. And it's so yeah. simple. Easy.
0: So simple. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great example because, you know, I think it's sort of widely accepted that performance reviews are pretty much a waste of time, um, probably more trouble than it's worth. Have you got a song about that? Yeah, no,
1: I do. Oh, uh, this... no good. So of course, sometimes we also know that uh, that bad examples are the best examples. <laughs> yeah. So I was having fun with this. And, and by the way, I, I spent most of my career in human resources. So I'm not bashing any one particular you know department or process. We've all got room for improvement. But I love to have some fun with this. So uh, I was thinking about the performance review process and uh, I wrote a song. This is how not to do a performance review. All right, right. so the performance review song. Here we go. How do I do this? (laughs) I (laughs) forgot my own song, here we go. (laughs) Writing your performance review. It says more about me than you. It's morally defeating and often misleading, but this is the best we can do. So here we go. I haven't said this all year, but now you're about to hear about that thing last November that you don't remember. That's not how we do things around here, just so we're clear. Now between you and me, this year everyone's rated a three successful and the budget is tight and that team building night really cost us you know top golf ain't free no it is not but i want you to know that i value your contributions to this organization you are knocking it out of the park you are a rock star you are optimizing efficiencies in places that we didn't even know you are a rock star i love you man and in light of all this praise here's your half percent raise Hope you enjoyed your performance review. Yes, let's do it again next year.
0: Outstanding. I'm going to give you a review, a 10 out of 10. That's fantastic. Actually, as we were talking about performance review, I, and we were talking about how to adapt tasks to make them more engaging, I was thinking, well, perhaps the manager has to write a song or a poem or something about the candidate or the, the, the worker you know yep, um, no, that, that, but that, <laughs> that was great um, yeah no awesome I, I you know the use of music combined with what's the word sarcasm maybe or uh, you know a, a, a humor uh, is you know very compelling to me at least very compelling you know someone who naturally has a sort of cynical mindset just doing things differently and using different means i would think does help people see what you're trying to get at you know yeah. i mean that you know doing that performance that you just did you know would be far better getting up on stage and saying well or maybe it's both yeah. you know it's both but it's exactly. it's it's Better than just saying, well, performance review don't work. We just had this data, blah, 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 blah. Everyone's snoozing, you know?
1: I was, uh, I was really scared about that song. Because uh, for a long time, and I still, to this day, a a lot of my audiences involve human resources. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) they're going to be the ones thinking I'm making fun of them. But what what I found is that the human resources professionals are actually the ones who love the song the most because we're laughing at ourselves. Absolutely. And and when people laugh at themselves, they, they, they take things a little less seriously and they go, you're right. What can we do about this? And they're in right. to engage. And I love that about that process. Yeah. And
0: humor is part of the adaptive defense mechanism, right? The humor, particularly yourself, is a great way of dealing with stuff yeah. without getting bent out of shape and, and putting it in the right perspective. Yeah, uh, One of my favorite folks, Peter Ustinoff, a British raconteur, um said humor is just another, uh, just a funny way of being serious Yep, and it is it makes you just like you did you just yep. with some humor made a really important point and the humor makes it more acceptable you know yep. i mean if you got up on stage and raged about how human resources are stupid and they should that would not have gone down well even though it may have contained something similar message but doing it the way you did. haha, that's funny. Yeah, absolutely. People will relate to it. I love it. Love I
1: love it. it. I'd like to think so. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, no, that, 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 that's, that's phenomenal. Tell us a little bit more about your book.
1: So acoustic leadership, develop a leadership culture that resonates. The, so, so, so several things associated with this. First of all, I told you sort of where that came from. It came from me wanting to help leaders because I didn't feel like we were doing them justice. And I thought, okay, if we have this complex competency system, what can we do to simplify it? And I realized that there was three buckets. And by the way, I stole this idea directly from music. I remembered what happened at the time I was watching. Do you remember MTV Unplugged? Yeah. Yeah. I was watching MTV Unplugged. I happened to see an old episode of MTV Unplugged. I think it was 10,000 Maniacs. And I, I, I binged watched it. I got on YouTube and I looked up all these old things and I loved it. And I thought, I thought why are these working? Why, why does this format really resonate? And I identified that there was three things that I thought were really important. That was first, simplicity. It was scaled back. It was minimalistic. Number two, it was authentic. It was the real deal. They couldn't hide behind, you know, giant stage lights and stuff like that. It was, it was an intimate performance. And then three, it was an opportunity, not just to try something different, but to introduce other people to something different. And somewhere in my brain, those things just made sense to me from a leadership standpoint. And I said, those three constructs, simplicity, authenticity, and opportunity. As a leader, our job is to make life simple, to help people do their best work, make it simple. Authenticity. Build authentic, trusting relationships based on who people are, meeting them where they are, and being wholly honest about who we are. And then finally, opportunity. Helping, as a leader, other people not only realize, but create opportunities. And there's one section in that part that I really think is valuable. And it's this idea, A, of who is and isn't a leader. And we've got this idea that leaders are managers and we hear it all the time. And as a matter of fact, from a learning perspective and training, we often say, okay, well, we're only having these courses for our managers. We're doing quote unquote leadership development, but the only people we're including are managers. And I look at that and I say, okay, you've got a lot of leaders in your organization who aren't managers, people who are thought leaders, role models, influencers, and they're out there leading whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. so don't you want them in this conversation because if you don't include them they're leading anyway they're going to either impact your you know your bottom line positively or negatively so inviting and using this as an opportunity to develop more people as leaders and then helping leaders realize that the best gift you can give is opportunity to someone else mm.
0: yeah.
1: that's something that's a big focus to that yes. point of the
0: book. yes absolutely absolutely and then they're um you know I'm sure, almost an infinite number of ways in which you can do that. Yeah. Um, and depending on circumstances, who the people are involved are, you know, blah, 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 right? And again, we like to think of these simplistic rules and generalizations, but that's what they are. They're simplistic and they're generalizations. And you can find lots of examples of people who violate those rules who are phenomenal in what they do. Um, and so, we, you know, we need, we're in a, world, a complex world where we need to get beyond this sort of binary simplicity, because it doesn't reflect a reality. It's a false, not very effective construction.
1: Right? Yep. And I think it's important to make a clear distinction between binary and simplicity, right? Mm-hmm. To your point, binary thinking gets us nowhere. This It's either this or this, or you have to be this or that, not helpful. Simplicity from a where do we spend our time and what do we give our energy perspective? To me, that's so key. Mm -hmm. I think you and I and most people, we come hardwired with these certain things. We do. We do one, two, three, five things that we're absolutely great at. And if we simplify our our worldview in that sense and go, hey, I'm going to do these things and, and more of it. That to me is where the magic happens. And I I say that for several reasons. I've learned that because that's how I've been successful developing people. Mm -hmm. I also say that because that's how I've learned to be successful in what I do. And I had a leader who did this for me. And Mm -hmm. I I include this story in the book, but it made the biggest difference in my career and I dare say my life. Mm -hmm. I had a leader who came up to me one day, long story, but the short version is he said, Rick, you're great at three things and i said that's it he said yes that's it you're great at three things you're a great trainer you're a great speaker you're a great musician do those three things wow yeah and i had no idea what this guy was talking about (laughs) and i said you're crazy and he said no seriously like bring your guitar to work i had no idea what he was talking about but once those gates were opened Focusing on those things, it changed my career. And what was fascinating was I didn't know how to do it, but you know, we we've, I figured it out along the way. But I realized that tapping into that that gave me a wellspring of inspiration and connections. And you know, that's my own personal example. But mm-hmm. I, I do believe that once we really hone in on those things and do more of them, we're going to be more successful. That doesn't mean we can't do the grunt work that we all hate. You got to do that. Mm-hmm. But I want to spend more of my time in those three areas. And I found success doing that. And I think other people can find that for themselves, for sure.
0: Up to that point, and I'm not sure exactly where in your career that happened, but up to that point, had you even considered using your musical skills in training or human resources? Not a bit.
1: Yep. And the funny thing about that, Howard, is I was successful. I was good at what I did. I was <laughs> arguably great at what I did. And there was nothing missing. Right, I had right. a wonderful career in talent development. And this leader said this to me, and suddenly it changed everything.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: changed everything. And all he did was say these three things. Yes, right. All he did. Right. So so it was, it was, it was a, a journey for sure to figure out how it all fit together. And I'm mm-hmm. still learning, I'm still figuring out the connections, but but it changed everything. And yeah. I had not even thought Probably. of
0: that. Yep. As a, as a kid, were you interested in music and musical things?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I taught myself how to play just about everything, actually, um, wow. when I was a teenager. Um, I, I sat down on the piano one day and just taught myself how to play it. And then I picked up the guitar and just taught myself how to play it. The funny thing about this was I was the only kid in my family. I was uh, one out of four I was the only kid in the family who didn't have music lessons (laughs) and yet I was the only one who actually learned how to play. So I don't know how that works, but yeah. So, so I've always been a musician and um, you know, music is something I love. And, And by the way, I, I do have, serious music if you will i've recorded mm-hmm. six albums of original music mm-hmm. uh, i was a finalist in a national songwriting competition oh, wow. yeah. and it's funny though because nobody wants to hear any of that they want to hear my funny songs which right. i'm cool of. i i yeah, love yeah. that yeah but but i'd always been a musician i'd always been a songwriter and it was this idea that for me personally that wasn't my work right, I, I right. Never Separate. Yeah, I never intended to be a full-time musician, go on right. tour, do that. That wasn't mm-hmm. in, the, in the cards for me. So I always kept it separate. And I think to, to your binary point, so many of us say, hey, personal, professional. Right. And those things have to not coexist. It right. was only when I brought both those sides of me to the table that's right that the opportunity was created for me.
0: That's right. And, and one of the things that I found, I found it personally too, but talking to a lot of people, they have forgotten or do not, you know, what they enjoyed doing as a kid, um, or they hadn't made the connection. Um, Bob Neal is a sportscaster out of Atlanta, been very successful, well known. And he told me the story that when somebody asked him, well, how did you get into sports broadcasting? He said, well, when I was at university, I liked to go to the games. And one time the uh the announcer was sick and they need to look someone on, you know, they called me in and I did it. And that's how I got started. And then he said, a few years ago, I came across like, I think it was like his junior year high school book. And in there, there were comments like, well, good luck with the broadcasting. He had completely forgotten that, you know, announcing and doing that was part of his childhood and he loved it. Yeah. He'd completely forgotten that, you know, Uh, I, I had that too. You know, I have a somewhat cynical you know, hopefully positively, that cynical view. I thought, oh, I developed that, you know, over the years. And then I came across something I'd written in elementary school and, dang, there it was, same yeah. thing. Yeah. And yeah. we get disconnected and we forget that those are our talents and skills, yeah. <clears throat> and that rightly so. Not should they be, oh, separated out. They should be included in what we
1: do. It's absolutely true. And it's it's funny because, you know, from a cynical perspective, I find myself in that camp frequently. I try to be funny about it rather mm-hmm. than snarky.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's right.
1: amazing how how sometimes we challenge these concepts, even, even when we feel like they might be okay. And I'll, I'll give you an example on that. Earlier, when I started my work as a keynote speaker, I would tell that story, the, the combining my talents and it leading to all these positive things, Right. And I remember because I wholeheartedly believed it. I would preach this, if you will. And I learned how to do it in a way that connects with people because it wasn't always, it, it was it was more when I first started, it was look at what I did and that never works, right? No. But I remember telling people, look, you've got these natural areas of strength, combine your talents and so on. And I had this one guy in the middle of a presentation. He said, okay, Rick, he raises his hand and he says, you, you talk about bringing your passions to work. But what if my passion is... Stripping. I'm not kidding. And I was like, A, you're a jerk, but B, <laughs> I was, I was, I was flabbergasted, and I was like, um, well, obviously you can't do that, right? In most places of employment, you can't do that. But it was funny because I thought about it for a while and I said, you know what? Okay, you're right. I mean, you can't do one-to-one sort of map this over to that if your passion is woodworking you're not going to bring your lathe into your meeting at work (laughs) but I thought about this and I said you know what is helpful with me for example it has nothing to do with my guitar
0: right it has to do
1: with the mindset
0: absolutely when I
1: think like a musician that opens up connections and so I pushed back and I said dancing stripping okay right what do strippers have what do they do Right. grace or, or or in dancing you know they've got precision and technique and that's right. and flow and graceful falling mm-hmm. how can we lean on those ideas and that's try, right and them at work yeah that's... and from there there's myriad examples of how we can
0: connect absolutely i'm i'm doing a book with a great uh, lady in uh, new york who's a trainer and a speaker and you know she what she does is she says to people i want you to imagine your dream life just imagine, turn off the conscious editor. Just imagine you're living your dream. What is it? And of course, a lot of the reaction is, "Are you kidding me?" You know, am I really going to be, you know, a Hollywood actress? And the point is, don't you know. You may, you may, but you may not. But, but there are many manifestations of that. Perhaps you join the local theater company, or you help them out in some way. You write plays. You know, you don't have to be totally the dream, but what underpins that, what fuels that is really important. Yeah. And you're saying the same thing. Exactly. Find that. You know, it doesn't mean you're going to, you know, every keynote is going to be, you know, six albums worth yeah. of your stuff. <laughs> it's how do you integrate the essence of that or part yeah. of that into what you do?
1: Absolutely. And oh, by the way, we'll have more fun in the process. And really, what's the point of any of this? <laughs> if we?
0: If you can't have fun.
1: uh, My my brother, uh, my little brother, really successful career. And he transitioned his career in the last two years. And and we were talking a while back, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, I was making more money than I've ever made in my life. And I was miserable, miserable. And, you know, he changed his career. He started working for himself. And that's not for everybody, but it Mm -hmm. works for some people. And what he realized was, again, he was doing things that he didn't care about. He was doing things that he wasn't naturally great at. And when he finally said, you know what, I'd rather be happy than rich, you know, Mm -hmm. suddenly he too found that sense of fulfillment, if you will.
0: Right. Yep. And, you know, we all have that. Um, For the most part, it's kind of trained out of us to think about that or to not value it uh, unless we can be super at it and make tons of money at it. But there are so, you know, that tells you a lot about who you are, how you would work, where you would find happiness, and how that could manifest in an, a gazillion different ways in different situations, right? Yep, absolutely. And, and and so what you're doing is the absolute manifestation of that, which is what I really appreciate and, and like about your story. That is, a, you are doing that. You have done that. You have combined the sort of, Traditional trajectory, if you want to call it that, with a passion and an interest and something that really fires you up, and it generally carries over.
1: Thank you. I, I love to think so. And you know, it's it, when I find myself myself struggling, it's when I'm not taking my own advice. Mm-hmm. It's when I'm trying to get outside of those things. And oh, I've also got to do this, and I've got to be like this. And mm-hmm. no, no, I don't. Right. <laughs> and I'm going to be happier, more successful when I when I find a way to create things for myself that that fit. With those strengths of mind
0: right right and, and and when and when you do that when you whatever it is when you do that with you know based on virtue and value you know humility compassion respect kindness grace all of those things i don't think you can go wrong i don't think you can go wrong if those things lead you and you're tied into your passion that's what life's about you know, if you're following money, just money, forget it. That's going to be disappointing to you. If you're suppressing really your purpose and meaning and the things you love, that's not going to work either.
1: Yeah. Right? It's fun because I'm making mistakes along the way, but I'm learning so much along the way. And but they're you know, great
0: mistakes.
1: Yeah. I, I, I was watching Bob Ross. What did Bob Ross say about this? I was watching Bob Ross not too long ago, you know, happy, happy trees. He's painting. And he was like, "This, of course, in true Bob Ross style. This is your world, and an artist doesn't make mistakes. You just paint over them." And it's like, "I like Bob Ross. I need to be more <laughs> like Bob Ross."
0: <laughs> uh, there's no, there's no wrong chords, right? I mean, nope. <laughs> nope.
1: That's right. Stuff might uh, sound better or worse, but you know, there's nothing wrong. When wrong, I think of, yeah. Uh, no, yeah.
0: that's right. Yeah. See, that's where we go wrong when we think there's only one way of doing it. Yep. Yeah. There's so the great so many great lessons in your story and, and what you're doing. Um, it, it's, it's really um, satisfying, perhaps that's not the right word, to see that uh, you have integrated this and turned it, you know, combined two things of interest and use it to maximize your potential and your influence. I think it's fantastic.
1: Thank you. And my goal is to help other people, you know, unlock and amplify their potential and talent. And, and that, that excites me. And so I'm thrilled to be doing the work that I'm doing, and, and I'm thankful, you know, for, thank for you for you for having me on this show, and also for for helping other people sort of think differently about the way they live their lives. Mm-hmm. I think there's so much value in that as well.
0: Great. Um, so finally, this this will be in the show notes. But yep. tell people how they can find you, find your book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
1: Absolutely. So easiest way to find me is Rick L-O-Z-A-N-O, L-O-Z-A-N-O ricklozano.com. Uh, the book is Acoustic Leadership. You could look for it on Amazon. Um, by the way, I've, I've got a couple of takeaways from you. If you want a little bit more information on some of the concepts or, or stories that I've told today, uh, you could go to ricklozano.com slash podcast. And uh, I'll include a couple of things based on this conversation that I think will be really fun for you. Uh, and and that's that's it. If uh, you know of anyone who's looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your audience, uh, let me know. I'd be happy to help.
0: Great, great. Well, I would certainly uh, hire you if I were in that situation. So uh, okay. keep up keep up the great work, Rick. It's been great uh, talking with you today.
1: I appreciate it, Howard. Thank you.